You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. When I was 12, I visited New York and fell in love with it. The lights of Times Square, catching the subway, giant pretzels in Central Park. I bought myself a diary and in it, I wrote out a 10-year plan with only one entry on the to-do list. Move to New York. For a 12-year-old, I may have been a little ambitious, but 10 years later, that dream was still alive and well. I'd watched every New York rom-com under the sun and had a strict diet of cream cheese bagels and filter coffee. And at the start of 2020, I packed up my things. At the time, I was blissfully unaware of what 2020 would bring. And soon after I sat down in New York came the onslaught of COVID-19. As COVID kicked off, I, like most people, had no idea of the scope of the pandemic. I decided to take a spontaneous trip home to visit my family, so I packed enough clothes for the week and got on a flight back to Australia. Two days later, the government sent out an urgent warning to recall international travellers. New York went into total lockdown, and not long after, Australia followed. I was stuck. I felt like I was in a state of limbo. I didn't have a job. I was unsure when or if it would be possible to get back to New York. At the time, returning home felt like a step backwards. But in reality, it turned out to be a step in the right direction. I went back to finish my degree, I met my current partner, and I got the opportunity to host this show. This week's stories are about taking chances and how sometimes going out on a limb leads to a surprising payoff. In our first story, Ali moves to the Northern Territory to start a new life. There's always like a psychodynamic way of looking at it, the what are you running from? Even when I got to Darwin, there was this whole idea of like you're either a missionary, a mercenary or a misfit. And I always wondered, I don't think I fit into that. I think I was someone who was like I was running away from my old life and trying to start a new life. I was standing outside the Iron Ear Hospital in Melbourne, I remember being on the phone, and that was the job interview for Northern Territory. I didn't sit in front of a video, I didn't go and do a face raising interview, it was just a phone interview to say, can you do this, this and this? We've had a look at your resume, great. And I did not you know, online generic application and I had a job. Accommodation was fun. It was a little hospital uh, village, they call it the Staff Village. I don't know if it really was a village. It was just a few barbecues and a swimming pool. And I lived in a bed sit, so every night I tucked myself in with a white sheet and a white blanket with blue stitching and labelled across it said, the Northern Territory Government. I was fantasising around this idea of working for the Royal Flying Doctor Service And to get an RFDS job, you had to live really in Alice Springs or further south. So I wanted to work for them and I looked around and a job offer came up for a primary mental health gig with the Flying Doctors. 
I had this childhood dream from when we went on a holiday to Central Australia. I was probably nine or something. And I'll never forget we went to the the tourist base and we got to go inside a plane and you got to see the stretcher and the IV drip they use on the plane. And I don't know if I ever said I wanted to have that job, but looking back, I think I was like, oh, that would be my dream job to be be a nurse with the flying doctors. So sure enough, I got that. I got the job. I was homesick in Alice. You know that feeling you get in the back of your throat when you, you think you're going to cry and you're sort of holding back tears and you have that uncomfortable feeling? I don't, I can't remember whether I had tears, but I was trying to hold back the tears and be brave that I'd taken on this challenge in this new place, even though, of course, I missed home and missed my comforts and missed my family. And not necessarily my biological family, who I'd left a long time ago. I was homesick just for craving that intimacy of relationships of people that knew me so well people that I could yeah just connect with and spend time with and I was again really out of my comfort zone in Alice Springs I was out bush for five days a week and I was only in town for the weekend so I hardly had time to socialize or to make connections so it took me several months to really find my feet and to really find some people and some solace in this central desert Enigma. I met Paul through some mutual friends. So Paul is a journalist. Well, he's a radio producer, but he calls himself a journalist. He is a journalist. (laughs) I shouldn't be so scathing. And my good friend was having a birthday party. So we went to this um, bar called Monty's, which is quite hilarious. It's got this gold unicorn that's the signage to this pub. And you actually get a lifetime ban if you climb up on this unicorn. There's a sign that tells you. I'm sure people have done it. But anyway, we obviously had some form of chemistry because we were just chatting and that conversation, we we just kept chatting as my friend left the party and we were the, one of the only groups left. I'd left my bicycle parked at my friend's place, which happened to be in the same suburb where Paul lived. So we sort of stumbled home to this bicycle and there, sure enough, there was my friendly bike locked up to the pole and I unlocked it and then... He said, oh, did you want to come around to my place for a bit? And so then I walked the bike and then had this awkward moment of having to try and try and get this bike up his staircase in this tiny flat. And then the next morning was really super awkward. I had to go to a triathlon the next day. It was This triathlon was at 6 a.m. So I sort of snuck out of the house. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, his housemate thought that I was someone breaking into the house as I was trying to get out of the house, lugging this bike back down the staircase, dodging all the dead cicadas that were all nestled on the stairwell. Paul had woken up at that point and, and then raced downstairs to sort of say goodbye and His phone had gone flat, so he had no way of getting my number. He passed me some festy piece of paper towel that he found that had stains all over it, and I'm handwriting my number on this piece of paper towel thinking, oh, this this probably won't go anywhere. Anyway, sure enough, the following day I got a text message saying, you know, how are you feeling, how are you, would you like to catch up for brunch? But then... 
um, the day I'd suggested on a Saturday and he was busy for some reason in the morning. So he suggested catching up on the Friday evening. And so I said, oh, that sounds good. Would you like to have dinner or something? And then he, he took a few days to get back to me and then he wrote, sure, Friday night sounds good. How about 11 p.m.? And I was thinking, that's strange. Why would someone want to have a sort of date at 11 p.m.? And I thought, oh, no, this guy, he's just a midnight devo. So I told my friends about this story because I figured I wanted a bit of collateral information, like a bit of a reference check, what kind of guy they thought it was. And they thought it was hilarious. As it turned out, the reason he wanted to catch up at 11 p.m., he was actually working on a radio show. So he was in the studio until 10. He was on air till 10 o'clock and he didn't get off air till 10.30. But I thought he was just a total sex fiend and thought he was just rubbish. So, yeah, we fixed that up. We caught up for brunch. It was one of those magical brunch moments where you meet for brunch at, I don't know, 10 o'clock and then you're still there when it passes into the lunch hour and the cafe's about to close and they're packing up all the chairs around you and sweeping up around you. And it was that moment where I, I think I just sat there and listened to him tell me about the difference between shortwave and longwave radio. So I know all about that now. Just slowly over time like a piece of mold the relationship grew like mold like just sort of accumulated colonized and then yeah before you know it we were sort of I guess dating that relationship's not mold by the way it's not mold it grew like nice mold like a like a mold on a nice blue cheese like the way of wine sort of matures that's how the relationship matured it was slow but but beautiful I think he mentioned it as sort of a, you know, a more loose idea of, you know, I can't wait to have, I'd really love to have kids with you one day. And me being a very concrete, uh, logical, analytical person, I was trying to pin him down as to exactly, well, when, like, when would you like to do that? Like, let's, let's factor that into our planning when he's very much a loose sort of easygoing guy. And so I was, yeah, wanting to really really know when. I didn't bond with Theo straight away. It took a few days, probably a few weeks, to really grow that connection. The bond was difficult because we had a lot of problems with the breastfeeding and getting a good attachment, so getting the baby to latch onto the breast. It actually meant that we stayed in hospital an extra night just to make sure that I could get that breastfeeding. And I felt really dependent because I every time I was trying to get him to latch and he wouldn't latch and then he'd cry and I'd hit the buzzer and then the midwife would come in. I felt so dependent that I had to get this help to get my baby fed and I knew that the goal, you have to feed your baby, like that's the golden rule, like you can't let this baby go hungry like it needs you the baby's so dependent on you for its life source that that was incredibly stressful this pressure to to get this right I just sort of thought that I'd be someone that would just naturally bond and have this amazing breastfeeding experience but no it was really hell changed it was several months later when I was sitting at home 
I think Paul was at work and I was by myself and I was just with Theo and I was staring out the window watching this gum tree sort of swaying in the breeze and just feeding him and just this moment of tranquility and just thinking, well, this is it, this is life. And it seemed really boring because I didn't have a phone. I think my sort of awkward thing where I got into this breastfeeding position and I realised my water bottle was sort of on another table my phone was somewhere else and I couldn't reach the remote. I was sort of like, oh, I'm a bit bored. But then I transformed that moment of boredom to, no, let's just actually just sit and reflect and think about this beautiful moment with this baby and, and how blessed I am to be here with him. That that It took months, but there, that was a sort of moment of, of realising, oh, this is this is it. This is what I'm doing. And it's okay. Thank you. Ta. Mummy will stop the recording. Have you got anything else you wanted to say? No, 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 no. You don't want to stop it? No, no. That story was produced by Michael Hartup. Ryan Pemberton was a supervising producer. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni Peters. At All the Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our next story, Alex takes a chance that leads her to the life she always wanted, but not in the way that she was expecting. I've always wanted to have kids. And when I was in my 20s, I was on a fairly conventional path to having them. I had been in a string of relationships with men and I was working in my dream job. Uh, I was working in the film industry for Baz Luhrmann. But by the time I'd reached my early 30s, my life had slowly started to derail. I'd left Baz to strike out on my own as a filmmaker and it wasn't really working out the way I'd planned. I'd ended up working at the local cinema, um, making popcorn and selling movie tickets. And because I was pretty broke, I'd been forced to move back in with my parents, which was humiliating. And it felt like the only thing that I really had going for me in my life was that I had this boyfriend. And we'd been together for about two years. But if I was really honest with myself, usually um, in my quieter moments when we were lying in bed, I had to admit that it felt like there was something missing from our relationship. And... If I was really honest with myself, um, I think I knew what it was, but the idea terrified me. And so I kept putting it out of my head. But as often happens, it kept creeping back in. And then one day, for some reason, I decided to do something about it. And I clicked on uh, a lesbian dating app. I signed up for it with a fake name, Zanna, 
and I uploaded a photo of myself uh, with my face completely obscured by a hat and sunglasses. And I spent a few months on that site and reached the conclusion that I'd made a huge mistake, that I wasn't a lesbian. And I was kind of relieved. But before I could disable my profile, a message came through. And it was from a woman who was also using a fake name, Piper. And because I'd been watching a bit of Orange is the New Black, I appreciated that reference. <laughs> she didn't have any profile picture at all. But we started talking online and her messages were really funny and really smart. And we realised that we actually had quite a lot in common. She had also recently ended a long-term relationship with a man and she had left her career to go back to art school. And her name was Kate. After talking for a little while, Kate and I decided to meet in person and we met at an art gallery. And when we met, I realised that this is what I'd been looking for. And that night, I remember lying in bed and feeling like my life was somehow at a crossroads. And that if I chose to keep seeing Kate, that it might take quite a different path to the one that I'd imagined for myself. And of course, we did keep seeing each other. And we saw a lot of each other over the next few weeks. And in the excitement of meeting someone new, I completely forgot that several weeks before I'd been to the GP. And it had been a routine checkup, but the GP had said to me, look, you're 34 years old. Uh, if you want to start a family, then it would be a good idea to get your fertility tested. Uh, and so I took her advice and I got some tests done, but I hadn't picked up the results. And a text message came through reminding me to pick them up, and so I did. I went to the clinic expecting her to tell me that my fertility was pretty normal for my age, but she said that your fertility is extremely low for your age. And she asked me if I was in a position to have kids with my current partner, and I said no, that a few things had changed recently. And so she said, honestly, the next best thing that you could do is to freeze embryos with a sperm donor. And I remember leaving the clinic and feeling upset about what she had told me, but also thinking, like, no matter what happens with my boyfriend or with Kate, that I'm going to do this and I'm probably going to do it soon because I really did want kids. And so I told Kate that, you know, I wanted to keep seeing her, but that I would be doing IVF. And so we started our relationship um, much in the same way that anyone does. We were hanging out a lot and, you know, staying out late at night. But we'd be hanging out in bars and I'd be ducking out to the bathrooms to give myself hormone injections. And even though I was doing this on my own, we were spending so much time together that, you know, inevitably Kate got involved in the process too. So I'd be flicking through donor catalogues and texting her photos of the potential candidates. I can remember at one point 
going to an appointment at the clinic and Kate came along with me and I was sitting there and I saw a lesbian couple sitting across the room and I imagined that they had probably been together forever and had, you know, finally reached this decision to have children. And I looked at Kate sitting next to me, who I'd known for about six weeks at that point, and I felt like a total fraud. But underneath that feeling was another feeling that something about this felt weirdly right. And so I went through IVF and at the end of it, there were two embryos which were frozen. And over the next couple of years, Kate and I had a lot of catching up to do to become fully functioning members of the queer community. <laughs> and we still had a lot of questions around identity. I kept wondering, am I really ready to have a baby when I still feel like I don't really understand myself? But by the time I'd reached 37, we still didn't feel ready to start a family, but I didn't want to leave it any longer. And so I decided to have the embryos put back in. And by that time, we'd moved north to Darwin for work and to have a bit more space to be ourselves. And to have the embryos put back in, I would need to fly back to Sydney. So everything was organised and I was ready to leave when a phone call came through from the IVF clinic and the voice on the other end sounded serious and I thought something's happened. They told me that the embryos that I'd frozen several years before had been damaged somehow. And when I dug a bit deeper to find out what that meant, it meant that someone had dropped them and that they couldn't be used. And so at that point, I thought, you know, this life that I had imagined for myself, it's, it's not going to happen. The only compensation that the clinic could offer was that they could put me through IVF again. And I didn't know if it would work because obviously now I was three years older than I had been, but I agreed to do it and went through the process again, all the injections, the tests. And at the end of that process, there was just one embryo. And they warned me that the chances of it working were very slim. But I had that embryo put back in and I got on a plane and flew back to Darwin. And as anyone who's trying to get pregnant does, I spent a few anxious weeks waiting to find out if it had worked. After a few weeks, I remember I got in the car and I drove to the pharmacy up on Bagot Road and I bought a pregnancy test and I drove home and weed on the stick and I had to leave the room. I, I couldn't watch to see what happened. But when I came back into the room, I picked it up and there were two little lines and I was pregnant. And nine months later, our son was born. <laughs> I remember looking at him and thinking, I just can't believe that you're in the world. He was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And that was six months ago. 
And in the last six months, uh, we've had to figure out who we are as a family and that will be an ongoing thing. But one of the really exciting things I've discovered about doing that as part of a same-sex couple is that there is no template really. You get to make up your own rules. The other thing I realised is that you're never really ready to have kids. <laughs> that having kids is what makes you ready for having kids. And that if you choose to embrace the challenges that come your way in life and let them shape you, you will become the person that you're meant to be. That story was by Alex Edmondson. Alex told this story at Spun, a live storytelling night presented by Story Projects in the Northern Territory. You can subscribe to the Spun Stories podcast and find out more about the Spun Storytelling Project by visiting spunstories.net. You can also look for Spun Stories on Facebook and Twitter. best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Pham are our social media producers. Our web producer is Connor Hughes, and Lydia Yosifova is our community and events coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.